So we have plenty of Italian now on the show with you as well. We do that a lot. Yeah, we do. Bianco, Kenny Pocari. There's been like five different, like it's been just a whole Dago round table. There's hands going. power, unite. Yay. Welcome to the Futures Edge podcast. I'm Jim Muriel. As always, the brains behind the operation, uh, uh, Bobby Iacchino and co-host. And today we have Daniel DiMartino Booth, who wrote a book called Fed Up that I love, used to be part of the Fed. And tell them where they can find you um, in life now. Uh, DiMartino.substack. DiMartino, sorry, DiMartino Booth. All these Italians. I forgot my, 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 my married <laughs> names on the end. DiMartino Booth substack.com or at Demartino Booth uh, on Twitter. Come find me. I'm I'm the founder of Quill Intelligence, and we write the best, least biased research on the planet. So every day. No doubt. And that book fed up. I wish I had my copies at home, and I'm at my office in the city, but I'd hold it up now because that's a great book, and I really appreciated it. Uh, every bit of it was wonderful. Oh, there good. You can do it for me. Okay, good. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, but when then did I you write that, Danielle? When did when did that come out? Oh, it came out five years ago. Nice. Five years ago. It, um, it, it, I haven't had time to write a sequel. I, I mean, if, you know, if I could just give up sleep entirely, uh, then I would have time to, to write a sequel. But uh, it, it got a whole new breath of life when Janet Yellen became Treasury Secretary. I, I couldn't tell you why. So, yeah. <laughs> Good. Okay. So we're recording this on Monday. All hell is broken loose. Mm-hmm. Um, we went from pricing in, you know, 75 or 50 basis points at the next meeting to now we're pricing in cuts by July. Okay, I, I don't know what the hell people were expecting. For months, we've been saying the Fed is going to tighten till something is going to break. Something is beginning to break. Why the hell is everybody surprised? What do you think? Well, you know, people keep saying until something breaks, but they don't want it to be something that they know or that they're associated <laughs> with or that's going to hurt them that breaks. They want for it to be something existential that doesn't affect their personal holdings. It doesn't work like that. Uh, no, it doesn't work like that. No, it doesn't work like that. And now people are like, I don't understand. Why are investment grade yields widening? I'm I'm like, well, because they've been suppressed along with everything else. So um, this is where the rubber hits the road. And, you know, I keep trying to tell people because there's all this rage in the cage and Jay Powell and he needs to be hung and corded and drawn and tarred and feathered. And we were either going to find a way to get off of this crazy constant cycle of you must slam interest rates down to zero and you must stop growing the Fed's balance sheet or we weren't gonna find a way. Was there ever gonna be an elegant, perfect, flawless way to get there? No, of course not. Not after all of the excesses that were built into the Fed's operating model and into the financial system. Yeah, it's absurd. Like we talk about the show we're Bobby doesn't like to bash the Fed anymore, which is counterbalanced by me loving to bash the Fed continually. So that's where we're at. But in, in uh, June of 2021, CPI had already printed over 5%. The housing market had gone completely parabolic. And their response was to call it transitory and to continue buying bonds, the $250 billion of just the mortgage-backed bonds. At the time, it seemed like it was almost like almost intentionally 
trying to screw things up. Like what could have possibly been in their head at that point in time to support a housing market that had already gone through the roof? Well, I think it was not so much what was in their head, even though, you know, look, there's no excuse. In fact, Christopher Waller, who I consider to be Jay Powell's chief lieutenant, uh, in addition to John Williams, by the way, there's an irony there since he came from the San Francisco Fed. But but Christopher Waller was uh, made his first public interview, Jim, a month after the timestamp you're saying and said the housing was white hot and that the Fed had no business being in the business of quantitative easing, hoovering up a third of the mortgage-backed securities market. And I'm like, wow, there's finally somebody with a set of stones who's on the Federal Reserve Board. He's got a permanent vote. And then they did nothing. So look, I'm not making excuses. I keep telling people that I'm not making excuses. I was on Wall Street. I watched a lot of roll-ups. I watched a lot of mergers and acquisitions occur in my years on the street. And typically when you couldn't resolve things, you would have, with a merger and an acquisition, you would start out with co-CEOs. I'd be like, well, let's see who wins that battle. And then just throw them in a pin and see which of the dogs comes out alive and see which of the dogs goes home and is no longer co-anything. Well, at the time you're referencing, bless the Biden administration's heart, it was like, will it be Lale or will it be Jay? Or will it be Lale or will it be Jay? What do you do to an organization like that? You split the staff down the middle. That's exactly what happened. The Fed staff was split down the middle while there was a leadership crisis and nobody knew who to tell what to do at the time, but they stuck on transitory when they should have moved past it. There was no leader there. Okay, before I bring Bobby in, so you're saying that there was no leader and the uh, politicos had split them in two, so they were feeling the political influence. That's what you're saying without question, right? Yeah, I mean, you don't normally okay, say, yeah, oh, this I is the Federal so Reserve, this is Jay Powell's line. <laughs> Leave a message at the tone. We didn't technically have a chair for months. Yes. Yeah, Bobby. So I want to clarify something, and Jim is right. I'm tired of the Fed bashing. I'm, I'm frankly bored with it. I think it's, it's like the fucking easiest thing in the world for people to do. But don't worry about offending him either. Let's just keep asking. Yeah, no, He's I, fine. He's a thick skin. I don't <laughs> give a shit. From going back to the time when they I said- mean how you really feel. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> how I feel. Going back to when the Fed was tr talking transitory, I was into bashing the Fed. And I couldn't agree more with what Jimmy just said. And I saw you nodding, so I assume you do too, that they had no business buying mortgage backs when the, market, the housing market was going through the roof. But I go back to when the Fed pivoted from dovish to hawkish was not uh, Jackson Hole. It was after the meeting between President Biden, Janet Yellen, Jerome Powell. It took about an hour that nobody reported from. Nobody said what went on. And I have this sort of fantasy in my head that Powell and Yellen, I'm sorry, Biden and Yellen turned to Powell and said, inflation is going to be your problem publicly. That's it. We're done with you. So go do what you got to do because we're going to blame you because we have elections to win. Now, I have no way of knowing if that's what happened, but that's when I started to go, okay, fine. So now he's going to do whatever he can to break the economy, which is the only thing he can do about inflation at this point, right? And we've all been spending years going, we have to normalize rates. And now they're trying to theoretically normalize rates and things are breaking. And it's like, okay, now people are like, well, you know, like you said, Danielle, it's now affecting me. So bail me out. What are your thoughts on any of what I just said? Look, everybody wants a free lunch. It doesn't matter how you fill that blank in. It just doesn't. If, if you know, if it's if it's Oprah Winfrey and she's got zillions of dollars at Silicon Valley Bank or 
or Megan and Harry, whatever. Look, there should be consequences to taking risks. I don't know who woke up one day and said the risk reward equation is broken and speculators should always be made whole. The, what's what's upset me on my feed these last 48 hours is the presumption as as my soon to be formal payroll provider Rippling is sending me one one email after another are we going to get your employees paid we don't know maybe maybe not we banked with the SVB we apologize. I'm like wait a minute this is not some banana republic okay if, if you're a company with five million dollars or ten million dollars of operating expenses and you've got cash coming in and going out at all times to run your company and and you're some joe schmo on twitter going don't make the depositors whole it's a you know it's and i'm like wait a minute wait a minute you're you want to put the company out of business that's just doing business so that you can say gotcha that's bullshit excuse my french no no and i that was where i was on friday or saturday and then i came to my senses and realized you were 100 percent right because my first inclination, I tweeted like, screw this. I'm tired of bailing people out. But you are 100% right on that. I agree with you. They, they should be bailed out. How the hell are they supposed to know what they have in their bond portfolio and where they're putting it in the hold the maturity section? So am I correct? And, and nor should saying? they, and nor would they. But but look, there were there was no more money pouring into the coffers of SVB because rightly so, venture capital and all this crazy SPAC and all that it dried up. The IPO market, it went away. So there was no longer money coming in the door. It was just going out the door. And other banks had these hold to maturity losses, have them, but not up to their eyeballs, not to the same extent. So I have a friend in Dallas, Texas, and I don't know what part of Texas you're in. I'm not asking. Let's keep that quiet. Um, he has a food company, okay, a hot sauce company, quite frankly. And in the first crisis, 2008, he was calling me saying, what am I gonna do? They're taking my line of credit away. Now he had no, nothing involved in housing. He didn't have a bunch of houses he was running out. He just had a line of credit to pay his employees because his, the stores that he sold his hot sauce to and the restaurants were generally on credit, 30 to 60 days, sometimes 90 days in the case of like a Costco or a Walmart, mm -hmm. right? So he wasn't getting the money that he was outlaying. His line of credit was only two and a half million dollars and they were going to close that. So let's go forward to the SVB situation is that's what you're referencing, right? I mean, these are not all Oprah Winfrey with $10 billion in whatever bank. And so immediately I started to say to myself, okay, I don't really know enough about the inner workings of banking because I worked there briefly right before I went into speculative trading to know that I don't have an ethical problem with depositors getting made whole. I also don't have a moral problem with shareholders being wiped out, am I wrong? Shareholders, bondholders, creditors. I mean, that's life. <laughs> that's life, that's what, yes, I agree 100% on that. Okay, I wanna uh, bring it to a quick other direction too, because we were talking about the, the, the current situation, how we got here, and then we're gonna get to how we get out of it. But you look at the federal government and the things and the missteps they've done over the last year and a half. When you look at just the profligate spending and every every angle that they wanna spend money on, including one that was ironically called the Inflation Reduction Act, which makes me wanna jump. Um, do you, what level of blame do you give them for the current situation? So, um, 
So, so I take beef with something that, uh, that, that can get me in a lot of hot water. I take beef with, with the government continuing on with one of the biggest slush funds for the wealthy ever invented. Uh, they're, they're, it's basically payroll tax refunds. And before this was rolled out as part of the CARES Act and extended by Biden, so started by Trump, extended by Biden, before this, in the 30 months that preceded July 2020, which is the first time that employers could take advantage of this, business tax refunds were like $143 billion over that 30-month span. Since then, we've plunked out about $375 billion because all you had to do by Biden extending this credit in the stimulus package that he signed into law a hot minute after he got into office was show that your business had been hurt by COVID in the year 2021 through the third quarter for about a hot nanosecond. And then you get to claw back all this money. I, I mean, it, it's impossible. I, I Anonymous, no naming of names, but you know, somebody got a phone call on Wednesday night and said, get your money out of SAB. You just got a $5.2 million business income tax refund. Let's make sure we move that money quick. This is a wealthy okay. person. I, no, no, it gets so much better. So a, a, a company sold itself to private equity, 75% of itself to private equity. So they're 75% basically liquid, you know, liquefying you know, generations of, of work and selling off to private equity, blah, blah, blah. Seven-figure income tax refund was coming to them. It'll probably end around April of this year, doled out in six months. Seven-figure business income tax refund. If you listen to GetRefunds.com, the jingle on the radio, it's for small businesses. They won't even... They won't even do it for them because these people are illegally working on contingency. If you're genuinely qualify for this money, you just fill out the damn form for the IRS and you get all $26,000 up to per employee. Or you can be solicited as I was a few days ago and have somebody actually collect a contingency fee on a bona fide damn tax that they won't let small businesses, they won't do the, do the paperwork for the small businesses because they don't get to cut a big enough check. That's a lot of money. Into the, into the U.S. economy, and people are like, I just don't know why there's so many children in Britain in first class on this airplane. And I'm like, because the wife insisted that the whole family get to go play in style because Uncle Sam wrote the family this massive income tax refund. Did that help the employers of the firm? No. Did it go straight into services spending and jack up inflation? Yes. Okay, I, before I'm gonna ask the next question too, I want people, because people come after me on Twitter. I'm in several businesses and one business I have is a restaurant. And we have you know, a team of lawyers. My partner at the restaurant is one of the smartest guys I know. And damn right, we applied for PPP. We have a restaurant, they closed us down. Damn right, did we apply for, the, apply for that uh, tax credit you're talking about too. And people are like, well, you have deep pockets. Why did, why did you, dude, I would have gotten five times more if I could have. I will claw back every penny I can. And at the same time, I can still argue how ridiculous the policy is. They are two vastly different things. But onto my question and stop my rant. Bob Stein, um, deputy, uh, you know Bob Stein is he works with Brian Westbury over at First Trust. He's deputy uh, uh, chief economist. He came out and said, this was two days ago. He said, the problem with SVB is not systemic. It is symptomatic. There's a big difference. They're all not They're all not connected like they were in 2007, 2008. And let's basically, everybody who has been around as long as Bobby and I have, and you look a lot younger than us, but you were there for the financial crisis. Everyone who's been around, every time something like this happens, they think, oh shit. 
Are we going down the tubes again? It's different, right? The situation exists for people who mismanage their bond portfolio to be screwed, but it's not something that's systemic. Agree or disagree? It's not something that's systemic in the conventional banking system. That being said, the leverage does exist. It just exists in the shadows. And this is a statistic that always blows people away. As of the end of 2020, the non-bank financial system globally was $220 trillion. The conventional financial system was $180 trillion, both of those with a T. It's not that that bank loan books are garbage, even though there are some there are some mid-sized banks with garbage construction and CRE loans on them, unlike going into the crisis when that was a big bank problem. Now it's a smaller bank problem. That being said, I think it's naive to suggest that there's not risk in the system if you're talking about the system holistically because the leverage simply moved out of uh, out of regulatory reach but it exists in the in the in the private market before i ask this question i always need to point out that i did not ever vote for donald trump okay before i ask this question so biden this morning came out and said because the previous administration rolled back some of the Dodd-Frank regulations. We are now he implied that that's why SVB happened. He didn't say it. But any any layperson watching that would then go to their dinner table and say, so Trump rolled back regulations, that's why this happened. So obviously we the three of us know SVB is not a community bank. The regulations that Trump rolled back were for community banks, right? And all it was was reporting regulations. The community banks were trying to do these loose associations in order to share compliance costs to offset the cost uh, imposed on them by Dodd-Frank. Trump rolled that part back. So from a perspective of going forward, Biden then said he's going to increase banking regulations. So from your view, Danielle, what happens with this big shit soup in regards to inflation? Obviously the Fed's at least going to slow. They're, only Goldman thinks they're going, to, they're going to do nothing at the next meeting. I haven't seen anyone else come out and say that. So where does this all relate to what happens with inflation? Does inflation now stay stuck where it is? Is this enough to slow inflation and the Fed can actually back off? Uh, I'm in a recession camp. Are you in a recession camp? All that stuff's my question. Yeah, um, I, I actually am in a recession camp. And you're actually seeing like, like the year over year change in, I call them take this job and shove it, job leavers. <laughs> all this little whiny business from this little cohort and I can't work here and I can't work that day and I can't work that day. It's getting real quiet now. And that's in, you know, really crappy Bureau of Labor Statistics data. So you're actually seeing the, 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 I've got so much job security, I can leave my job. You're seeing those numbers fall pretty rapidly. Inflation follows. It's pretty simple. Whether you're talking about the chemicals industry, anything in the commodities complex, the China reopening trade not working out quite as much as well no, as we planned for it to work out, uh, collapsing demand. I'm sorry, but when my internist sends me a text on a Friday afternoon and is like, okay, I'm canceling the vacation, taking all my money out of the bank on Monday, there's going to be a ratcheting back of spending because people are a little freaked out by how public this has been, these bank runs. So, and we, and we were already going into a recession. You're already seeing 51 bankruptcies with companies with liabilities of 50 million or more run rate in the three months ended February 28th, 51 large companies. That print we last saw during the great financial crisis. Insolvencies are going up on a personal level. Insolvencies are going up among small businesses. Insolvencies are going up across the board. 
And that is telling you that we're inside of a recession or at the precipice of falling into one before Silver Lake, forget SVB, before the first domino fell. And now we've got three. So my, here's my question is that my belief for a long time has been that, and I said this on Friday with Cudlow in response to John Taylor, and I said it was not a comfortable position disagreeing with John Taylor. He's a brilliant guy. But our economy over the last, call it 40 years, has become absolutely addicted to rates being held inorganically low. Rates are held low. Companies become profitable. The government wants their fair share. They increase regulation. They have punitive taxation. Then the Fed lowers rates again. Then the government sees companies are profitable. They go after money again. We're in squash repeat for 30 years. So right now, I think that rate, the rates have to be much lower than here. I think we're way above whatever the neutral rate is for our you know, flimsy economy. First of all, do you agree with that? And do you think there's a possibility that we just rinse, wash, repeat, the Fed starts lowering rates again, asset prices start that higher again, and we wait for the next uh, catastrophe? I think, that, I think that if we were going to get slammed down to the zero bound, there would have been more of a panic at the Fed. Instead, they tried to say, well, you know, this looks like an interest rate risk gone bad. And this looks like an asset liability mismatch, which is not the same as credit risk on these bank balance sheets. So we're just going to indemnify these hold to maturity assets. And, you know, we'll call it a one year term, but we're the Federal Reserve. We can stretch that out in March of 2024 if we want to. That's fine. That's different, Jim, than the need to go to the zero bound. In fact, if the Fed indemnifies these assets, they can keep doing QT. Okay, so what then what happens to, to risk assets? Like if the Fed keeps oh, doing that's, QT. that's a mess. Yeah. <laughs> so, so do you think that investors or traders should not, not be expecting anything that resembles the last 30 years at all, where we bubble, 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 correction, bubble, bubble, bubble? If Jay Powell was of the mind to get interest rates nominally so high that he could lower them in theory and still never say two is the new zero, never go to the zero bound again, recognizing that it's broken. You just said what, for 30 years? Yeah, it's, it's broken. Yeah. So, and, and, and recognizing that QE didn't help. So you keep trying to roll that balance sheet down this credit cycle is not going to be arrested by a Fed rescue. Okay. So what about like in 1980 um, when Reagan took office? That's really hard to do. Yeah. Because oh, no doubt about it. we're going to break along the way. But if he can get past this breakage, that's a minor damn miracle. Sure. So, what, so in 1980, uh, Ronald Reagan lowered regulation. Ronald Reagan kicked open the door to um, you know, take advantage of cheap labor in developing economies. Paul Volcker did what Paul Volcker did. We had, you know, technology with the advent of the internet, proliferation of automobiles. There were so many things that happened all at once to long-term address inflation. Um, if the next election happens and we get a more pro, uh, pro-business, less regulation, could it set us on a better path or are we too far gone? I, I never want to say we're too far gone, Jim. And... If, if, if Powell manages to hold his ground and he's got the time to wait out the next election, by the way, because um, I mean, I think Donald Trump tried to fire him for cause and somebody showed him that he hadn't done anything for cause. So move on. <laughs> so uh, it's hard to fire a Fed chair. 
period. And Jay Powell's worth $150 million, doesn't need the pension. He's there for his country. So if he holds his course and the credit cycle really does continue to cycle through and pull the zombies out of the system, removing the dead wood, making way for new entrants that create jobs and are efficient operators and deserve to be in business by virtue of something beyond junk, the junk bond market being open, then that's better. That's better for our long-term prosperity. So I'm glad you brought up um, Jerome Powell's net worth because we had Michael Farr on uh, a while ago, maybe three, four months ago. And he came up with Jerome Powell. You know, they went to the same clubs. I don't know if it's discos or golf clubs. I'm assuming golf clubs. I'm thinking the Chevy Chase <laughs> Country Club. Continue. Totally agree. I totally agree. So Michael told us that he said, I know Jerome Powell. And if you, we used to all joke around that if Jerome Powell said he's going to go through this brick wall, I'd be like, oh yeah, Jerome, you're an idiot. We'll see you later. And come back six, eight months from there. And he's like still banging his head against the brick wall. That's the kind of guy he was. So having said that, my fantasy is exactly what you just described. And like, I don't want the American um, worker to suffer. I don't want a recession. Unfortunately, with these constant cycles, we're going to get one, whether it's tomorrow or the next day. When the numbers started coming out really strong, a lot of our clients were like, Bob, do you still think there's going to be a recession? I'm like, yeah, it's just pushed the other way. So what do you think the likelihood that that's what Jerome Powell is trying to do is to actually, his legacy being, I fixed the mistake of these constant cycles? Or do you think he just wants to run out his term at this point? Well, unless he's clinically insane, he would have never wanted to be renominated in the first place, unless that's his goal. Unless his goal is to put monetary policymaking back in the hands of monetary policymakers, which would actually render the Fed independent of both DC and Wall Street. So he's gladiator, or he wants to give it back to the Senate. He's gladiator. There's a couple things. He, I, I, here's what I, I, Jerome Powell seems like an excellent guy to me for some of the reasons you said, you know, he has all the money that he needs and he took this job anyway. And I genuinely think he wants to help. That doesn't take away from the fact that he showed some incompetence, what incompetence when the time came, mm -hmm. but what, when we're saying, I, I think that nobody wants to be embarrassed and nobody wants to lose their job. I think there was a couple of moments where political pressure was, was on him and he caved to political pressure. I mean, keep in mind that he got hawkish literally twice the day after the two different levels of confirmation. He succumbs to political pressure too, does he not? Well, I think he definitely wanted to make sure that he had four more years to actually get the job done. Oh, okay. That's a good spin. I like that, by the way. That's well, if good, you don't that's have the time answer. on your hands, you can't finish the, you can't get to the finish line if you're pulled, if you're disqualified, disqualified from the race. Yeah, I like that a lot, by the way. That change, again, that changes the way I think a little bit because you're right about that. That maybe could have been his, his methodology, Bobby. But all he was, look, remember, he's a lawyer. He was just getting a continuance. Yeah, yeah okay. That is right. impressive, by the way, because it's really hard to change this stubborn son of a bitch's mind. Uh, yeah, I don't change my mind very often. And I'm not saying I did. I'm just saying that that's a very interesting way to look at it. And that deserves some consideration. Calabrese, sure you know. calabrese. See, if I was near you, I would knock on your head and say calabrese. <laughs> oh, I know. We all yeah, three I literally, I'm calabrese. Are we all three literally calabrese, no. you know? No, no I'm, I'm, I'm next door. I'm uh, Abruzzo. Ah, Abruzzo is yeah. uh, beautiful. We're, we're a Malfi coast. We call ourselves Napoletan, but just off of Salerno. 
a little town called Campania. It's beautiful. Yeah, my grandmother was actually, it was my grandfather who was from Abruzzo. My grandmother's from Naples and she was batshit crazy. Anyways. Do you know that? I'll go back to markets in a second. Do you guys know that that Naples, that Napolitan joke? So there's three guys on a plane. One's British, one's uh, French, the other's Italian. So the French guy puts his hand, I'm sorry, the British guy puts his hand outside of the plane and he says, oh, we're going over London. How do you know? My hand just hit Big Ben. Then the French guy goes, hey, we're going over Paris right now. How do you know? My hand just hit the Eiffel Tower. Then the Napolitan guy says, uh, we're going over Naples right now. How do you know? I put my hand out the plane, they stole my watch. <laughs> it's like one of my only Italians will laugh at the joke. So right. what does this mean, Danielle? For the, you know, it's, it's awesome. I mean, you can only tell it to people who understand that the stereotype of Calabrese are stubborn, Napolitan are, are thieves. Thieves, so right. These thieves. wonderful Italian stereotypes that I just love so much. Um, what, do, what do you think this means for the dollar in the in the longer term? Does this have, in other words, does this have any effect on the ECB, what's going on here, or is it still too early to tell? And again, I want to let people know, we're recording this on Monday. We just released the Gordon Johnson podcast, who, by the way, thinks the Fed funds rate should be at 9%, which is interesting. Yeah, 9%. Then also, this is going to be released like after CPI will release this one. So I want to give you like sort of runway there. Um, the most interesting thing that I've seen in the last 72 hours, um, when, when my husband actually defended me to other people and, and they're like, no, 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 there's something really going on in her world. She's allowed to be on Twitter for 48 hours straight, leave her alone. Uh, <laughs> so, um, the most interesting thing I've seen is a, a buddy of mine sent me a spreadsheet of what we would consider to be uh, hold maturity, really frozen, paralyzed paper in the European banking system that would make us blush as a percentage of GDP. So you asked me about the dollar, right? Yeah. I'm, That's I'm dollar positive. <laughs> So, you know, let's, uh, you know, okay, so the fall of Rome, um, that's kind of when reserve currency status started bopping around, uh, and, and typically there's a hot war in between, fall of empires, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm, not, I'm not somebody who thinks that we can all come together and form a, a sweet little basket of currencies and agree to everybody have their own little percentage and nobody has hegemony, and no. I'm somebody who believes that a leader's a leader and a loser's a loser when it comes to having the reserve currency status. And the other thing that's on our side is, you know, China doesn't want it yet. So, so when you, you laid that out for the dollar and um, you know, dollar hege hegemony is not being threatened is what you're saying is that, do you think that's almost sad in some ways because it emboldens our, the stewards of our currency to behave poorly knowing full well that there's such a small chance that they do any serious damage to the currency? Double it's well, so, you know, my my silver lining is really perverse because in 2011, the United States lost its sovereign debt rating uh, because it really would not address entitlement reform uh, as, as part of the debt ceiling standoff. So they actually walked away with nothing, both sides. So, but right now, if you've got the gavel and you're seeing that there our treasury market's too big, our, the level of our debt's too high. The financial system cannot handle this level of debt. Do you have a better or a weaker hand going into these negotiations because of what we're seeing play out in what's supposed to be the most liquid and deep asset market on the planet? I say maybe 
7 trillion is not a good number. Maybe we should take that down to five. Maybe we can actually address entitlement reform now that we're seeing in real time that there's simply too many treasuries out there. It's too big of a market because the debt's never been addressed. So I, I, I mean, it would be total, it, it would be soft landing of the biggest sort to come through this, not lose the treasury as the risk-free asset, not lose the dollar as the reserve currency and, and, and reform entitlement spending. We'd actually have well, something to be like, hey, I'm an American. I mean, we, that, seriously. Yeah. So I, before I give Bobby the next question, I just want to comment on that real quick. I, even like the, the Republicans I, mentioned something about changing Social Security and just were lambasted. And uh, I, I don't believe that that could happen. I just think you get the government you deserve and the people who vote in this country can't understand why we need to do that. Um, Bobby, you got a question? Well, I mean, sort of. And I mean, that's what made me so upset when I heard Biden this morning say, you know, the rollback of the regulations by the previous administration, Twitter immediately blew up with like, oh, this is Trump's fault. And again, I didn't vote for Trump. I don't, I don't give a shit. I don't. I don't care whose fault it is. I, it's not Biden's either. I mean, directly. Right. So, it's not. yeah, it, it's not. I mean, it's I mean, just it, it, I don't know how you can have an entire administration that is predicated on on trying to distract the public for four years. Yeah, it's just, that's it's, exactly it's, what's it's, happening. Right what now. what is the distraction du jour? So that nobody actually Su successfully, by the way. Yeah, successfully. Very successful. I didn't say we were a smart public. I just said we were a public. <laughs> and this, I mean, this to me, a certain amount. I, I've of got yahoos thing. on my feed who are like the discount window. I'm like, it's called a haircut. Don't tell me that some <laughs> walk in the park to go to the discount window. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, to me, a certain amount of this is is that well, not a certain amount of it, a huge amount of it is one of the missed opportunities of financial media. And part of the reason there's a certain network I don't go on anymore, neither does Jim, because these 60 second conversations on that network that are completely useless to the average person. I remember somebody said to me, you know what? No, I'm not gonna say it because Jimmy may not want me to say it. I went on a, on a certain network I don't go on anymore. And somebody called me up and go exactly what you say. And I said, see, this is why I don't want to do this shit anymore. Literally, anyone who understands what I'm saying ain't listening to me. And anyone who doesn't understand what I'm saying, you can't do anything with what I just said. So what is the point? What is the, that's why we wanted to do this podcast in the first place. So let me ask you, from a perspective of like the regulatory side that you're so knowledgeable, knowledgeable about, I insist that this is a failure of regulate of the regulators not that we need more regulation shouldn't our regulators be knowledgeable enough to know that they had horribly biased unhedged risk when they're audited if they were audited see and that's the thing a few months ago a buddy of mine came to me and said if if i'm the fdic who in 2008 could broker a marriage between two banks my hands are tied now because no bank would buy this bank because they wouldn't want to recognize those losses immediately. So there's no way to broker marriages. And that's a regulatory break. That's a regulatory breakdown to have not had as the Fed is on the most aggressive rate hiking campaign since 1981 to have banks have so few options with regards to the ability to hedge their holdings. They were stuck. 
They only could put them in hold to maturity, but nobody buys a bank with a ton of hold to maturity losses and recognizes those losses overnight as a, as, as a way to get through the acquisition. No bank in their right mind would do that. I spoke to two guys over the weekend. One is still at an extremely large institution that would be considered too big to fail. The other one got squeezed out of his job for this reason. He got basically pushed into early retirement. He insisted about a year and a half ago that the Fed was going to drive rates higher and they should hedge their book. And he got pushed back, pushed back, pushed back to the point where he's considered insubordinate and disrespectful to his superiors. And he was forced into early retirement for insisting that they hedged their book against what he thought he was dead right, what the Fed was going to do. And he basically got pushed into early retirement. Now he's out there looking again for a job, using that as say, hey, my bank lost, my old bank in the last job lost an absolute shit ton of money because they wouldn't do what I said. Now, I don't know if he'll be able to get that backed up. The other guy hedged his book. And when he was talking to another banker recently, he's like, I'm getting killed. He's like, I'm not, I'm actually making a little bit of my hedges right now. So that's why I say that. It's like a lot of these banks, they grow so big, so fast, and they don't have any traders on their staff. And I don't mean guys to take speculative risk. I mean, guys like, you know, traders who might go, yeah, this might actually happen. So this insurance is worth it. So many of these bankers who want to get paid, paid like hedge fund managers because they're jealous of the package that the hedge fund managers get, just leave things under or overexposed because year over year over year, that works. It's almost like naked calls and puts, right? A lot of individuals got screwed on that 2008. They're getting screwed on it again now. So I didn't have a question, did I? No, but I will I'll say- I'll take one then. <laughs> I'm on film in May of 2022 saying, watch the hell out. He's never stopping. But you said a second ago, you said, while he's in the midst of the most aggressive tightening cycle, do you still think today he's in the midst of the most aggressive tightening cycle? Or is it over? It doesn't matter if it's over. It matters if he maintains. That's it. Oh, and not, yeah, and, right. Okay, so you're on my team then too. Like we're above the neutral rate. We can, we can fight inflation with current level of rates, uh, but he's, the, the futures market says he's going to pivot. You'd prefer that he just stays where he is, fights the fight. That's what you're saying, right? Let's the balance sheet continue to shrink organically. Think, yeah, and I think that's a key point, right? We're, everyone talks about rates and ignores the shrinking of the balance sheet, which has been almost, almost 800 billion at this point, right? I mean, they basically ignore it. And like, I have this, like I'm in the camp that he's going to pause now and then give it however much time it needs for this to sift through the system for depositors to be made whole. And then he might hike again because Danielle, earlier you mentioned services inflation. How would anything that's going on right now affect services inflation? Well, again, those getrefunds.com has moved from advertising on the radio to advertising on TV. I wrote about this a few days ago. I'm like, you know, you're depleted. You know, the pool's almost empty and ready to be, you know, Cloroxed and cleaned when you start to throw more marketing dollars at a smaller pool of people you can get this money out of. Because as far as I know, there's no big stimulus checks coming out of this Congress. So and with companies in layoff cycle, that means that in the aggregate, your income is decreasing as a country. So again, I've had people say, I'm not going to take that big trip. You bring down services spending by not taking that big trip. So, I mean, so we we're far enough away from any elections that there won't be any stimulus checks. If we were approaching no student, an election, there, I'm pretty no sure student, that no, they would no, send no, some out. No, no, no. 
focus on the debt ceiling, focus <laughs> on the debt ceiling, because it's going to draw out into the fall. Oh, that's huge. But there's no stimulus in the middle of a debt ceiling fight. Yeah, that's actually a great comment. We haven't even talked about Rick, that. Hold it. If it stretches out to fall, that means that'll be one of these bullshit government shutdowns, which is not a shutdown at all. Really, they close the national parks. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're calling for? I am. But as I said earlier, if I've got the gavel and I've just been able to demonstrate that the treasury market's too big because all these authorities had to step in, then I can suggest that it's no longer a theory that debt and deficits don't matter. We've just seen in real time that they do matter. So it really is time to come to the table. That's my point, is that there's a stronger negotiating hand than there was a week ago. So I've been, I've been on that a little bit. You I'm sorry, Jim. Go ahead. Oh, can you expand on that a little bit? Because I think it's important for people that watch our podcast to know exactly what you mean by debts and deficit matter and how it affected the situation we're looking at. Well, we just we've been happily assuming forever that because we're the risk-free asset and everybody needs treasuries and that's the basis upon which all trades are settled, blah, 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 that it could just continue to grow and grow and grow. But what we're seeing now is that because regulations we're not in the right place at the right time, the, the sheer amount of treasuries in the system that need regulatory relief. And that's what you're talking about when you're talking about hold and maturity. You're talking about the fact that they need regulatory, they're sitting on these massive losses, but they're money good. They will mature at par unless the United States is going to be vaporized off the planet, not trying to give Putin ideas, but they will mature at par. But the point is, it's a massive, too massive a market. We have been borrowing like drunken sailors for generations, plural. And even though we're the United States of America, and even though it's the U.S. Treasury, there's too much of it. And, and that's why I'm saying, if you realize that there's too much of anything, then you might should learn how to pull back. And so at the risk of, you know, igniting Americans into becoming Parisians, riding in the streets because we want for our retirement age to go up by one and a half years or whatever, it's time to sit at the table and say, what is the minimum age that you can collect Medicare? What is the minimum age that you can start to collect Social Security at the risk of, you know, turning into the French overnight? These are discussions that should be had that can save trillions of dollars. And I argue that what, what we're seeing right now, which is, which is a crisis in the treasuries market, I'm arguing that that can be used to demonstrate that it is time for both sides of the aisle to come together and address the long-term liabilities of the United States of America. So I really liked that answer a lot too. And you just mentioned both sides of the aisle, the political parties, which we don't, we, we don't like to get political in certain ways. We are both kind of fiscally sound and logical conservative, so we tend to vote against Democrats. My question is, can you, and if you can't do this at this point in time, because I know you're, you're someone who's in the limelight quite a bit, you see the cast of characters that are lining up to potentially be um, president coming up. Is there someone, do you believe, that can, can move us toward this? Because well, I don't, by the way, that move us towards this sense of responsibility? So, you know, I... Um... And let me preface this without, God, this is going to sound wrong. This has nothing to do with her being a female at all. I just think she's logical. I kind of like Nikki Haley. I and, do too. And I, I'll say that, and it has nothing to do with, you know, the world needs a, its first female president. You know, I have, I have three boys and a girl. And my daughter asked me all these years ago, why are you not going to vote for the first woman president in the world? And I'm like, because she's she a traitor. 
to the country. Yeah. I can't. So th there's right and wrong and in between, but you don't vote for somebody just because of what flavor they are. So, but I happen to no like doubt. Haley's philosophy. I think she's a good person for the job. I just wish Nikki Haley was in her prime. Because then I, I totally <laughs> What a clown that guy was. What you know what idiot. he's referring to, Danielle? That John Lemon, what's his name? Don Lemon? Don Lemon. God, it was such a painful when he's like, yeah, women are past their prime by like 35. Please tell me like, you saw that when, please tell me you saw that. Oh, you that gotta go it. see it. Okay, Jesus. Now I said it and she didn't even see that idiot uh -huh. say that. Now no, I sound like I'm I having trouble picking my job off of my desk. So yeah, no. Oh, and the two women who were on the, who on the said show this? with them said, Don Lemon, is that his name? The yeah, guy, is he okay. CNN? And he so goes, he goes not, it's not me saying it, just everybody no. says, when's a woman's prime? And they're like, what the hell are you talking about? Don yeah. Lemon, so Don Lemon on his stupid morning show that he got demoted to, he, they were talking about how Nikki Haley had said that most presidents lately have been sort of past their intellectual prime. She didn't mention a gender, right? She just talked, we just had two old guys, Trump and now Biden, who's older. Right. And she said, we need some younger blood. And then Don Lemon came on and said, if you Google it, women are in their prime in their 30s. So really, Nikki Haley's past her prime, too. And like his two female co-hosts were like, I'm sorry, what? Like that. And by the way, neither one of them were 30. And they were just like, and he's like, no, no, it's not me. Don't don't blame the messenger. Just Google when a woman's in her prime. And okay. Nikki Haley did um, not say they weren't Google in their when a woman's in her childbearing prime. I don't we, know what we I was don't talking know. about. <laughs> By the way, so I didn't say that. I was. No, no, I understand. I'm just trying to figure out how anybody could be that asinine. Oh my god, it's, I couldn't even. It believe was one of the that. most uncomfortable things, and it was hysterical. Like I don't like like theater of the absurd that much normally, where it gets really uncomfortable. But this one, I enjoyed the hell out of. Yeah, I and I did it post too. something about my wife is 58 years old, but she could outthink you, she could outrun you, she could outlift you, and she could snap your neck like a chicken bone, Mister <laughs> Lemon. So why don't you? Yeah, why don't we? Uh, we'll meet up and see who's in their prime, you dickhead. Yeah, do me a favor, Danielle. When we're done here, watch that video so you don't, don't worry. I don't asshole. worry. I will. I will watch it because I that just was the best thing on TV in a year. Yeah. It was, did he have the Bible in his hand and say, "My daughter was 16 years old, and I was, you know, I was part. I, I was giving her away because she was in her prime." No, what? Okay, I cannot oh watch God. to watch this. Wait oh, to yeah. watch this. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's good stuff. What other topics do you want to hit before you go, Danielle? Do you think there's anything else? You mentioned China before and the reopening not going as well. Do you have some some insight on that and what what could play out there? Because I'm quite long copper because I thought the, the opening of China was going to go a lot more smoothly and, and a lot better than it has. And the trade still worked out, even though that part of it didn't. Well, look, it's it's a matter of, you know, people need to understand that the Chinese government has tried four times and finally succeeded the fourth time to break the back of property speculation. They they uh, you know, they, they 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 cannot stand western culture, but they do they do covet domestic consumption. But the only way to generate domestic consumption was to get people to be not so highly concentrated households with their holdings and property. The only way to do that was to break the back of speculation in, in the property sector. They've got a shrinking population. They don't need to build much more. Their industrial sector is largely satisfied. The global population is shrinking. India can't get its politics together because if India could, I'd be long copper all day and on Sundays because that country needs some infrastructure badly. And it needs a generation of infrastructure investment. And that will be off to the races 
India was. But in 2007, 2008, China wasn't finished with this industrialization. They weren't ready to hand anything off to their household sector. 2015, 2016, industrial recession globally, China was able to come in again and buy up all of the commodities, whether you're talking about from agriculture to metals and back, they bought everything. But right now, their focus is not there. They do not have as much money as they once had. Their economy has slowed so much and people do not appreciate that because there's not a reindustrialization. I mean, Goldman Sachs talks its commodities book. Great big surprise there. They're like, it's worth the advent of a new global commodity super cycle. The guy says the same thing. It's like, a, oh, look, my clock says January the 5th. We're at the advent of a new <laughs> global commodity super cycle. I better get on TV and tell everybody so that I can talk up Goldman's book. But, but, but China's not where it was the last two times it was able to bail out the commodities universe. It's just not in the same place demographically. Interesting. This is, Bobby, to, both you guys, this is to both of you guys. Is there any chance, obviously social security entitlements would be the hardest conversation. Uh, the harder conversation, because I think both sides are captured, is in military spending. Is there, am I dumb to hope? This is actually part of the reason I like Tulsi Gabbard and I really don't know how she would stack up fiscally because I've never heard, really heard her speak about it. Um, she only talks about getting out of these wars and cutting our military spending. Is that like, am I an idiot? Is that completely off the table no matter who wins? Obviously the president doesn't control that, but I wanted to ask both of you guys that. So, you know, I'm, I'm color me a little bit old fashioned, uh, you know, after watching, Putin take out his own communications gear. Um, I, I think that having a state of the art best military on the planet that can fight a war on two fronts has the capacity and capability is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I don't even think requiring two years of service to your country is necessarily a bad thing. But then they say that Italians are the last tribe of Jews. So who knows? Maybe it's just <laughs> me naturally. I have no idea. But I, I, I do believe that having state-of-the-art military and a competent military is the best way to play a good defense and not have to worry about war. So, so my answer to that would be similar to Danielle's. Like when I look at the, how much have we given Ukraine already? Um, I, I, you know, I'm more of a libertarian and I, I, and I know every, you know, for every hundred billion we spend on defense, probably 90 billion of it goes to line somebody's pocket and actually 10 billion makes its way into technology. Um, so I am for a very, very robust, um, you know, defense sector. So I don't know how you clean that up and make them be efficient with their money. Uh, Cause I think they could do it for cheaper. Obviously I, I always think about the scene in uh, Independence Day where the father goes, well, you don't think they spent $2 million on a hammer, do you? You know, when they're talking about the underground stuff and, uh, you know, where they have all the aliens. But I'm like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, that, it probably goes to a lot of different people. But I'm mostly with Danielle. I'd like to cut 10% of defense spending and make them be more efficient. But independent of that, I don't think it's worth it, you know, in a world that people are looking at us like we're weak to have a weak defense. That makes I sense? That, I'm sorry, Jimmy. I think that's really what it is to me is I think that so... A, a military analyst, so it's not like a panel that I spoke to, but a military analyst uh, is currently still active in, in the military, said to me that our military is probably 3x the closest competitor technologically and in terms of capabilities. And he's probably biased because he's in the army. Um, but 
you know, the efficiency of the military spend, where it's just these blank checks that go to the military industrial complex, to quote Eisenhower. I, I don't know. Joe Weisendahl on Twitter one time, I love Joe Weisendahl, but one time on Twitter, he said to me, so Bob, you want to cut spending? Do me a favor, go line by line and tell me what you want to cut. I'm like, okay, I've got a fucking job, Joe. Okay, I don't have time to do that. <laughs> but I will tell you that they're spending too much everywhere and it can be cut. You don't have to believe me if you want. I said, as a matter of fact, do me a favor, Joe, go line by line and tell me what every dollar's for. And then I'll show you what every do- where the dollars can be cut. And I feel like one of the places is obviously entitlements, but I feel like because they have to be voted in, it's off the table. But I feel another place is military spending because I just don't think, I think we're nearing a trillion for Ukraine. That's military spending, you know, to a certain degree. So, I mean, we're sending them tanks, we're sending them missiles, and now we got to rebuild those. And that's going to cost. And so, I don't know. I mean, so I'm, I'm gonna, all, I don't I'm, know where it can be cut. I'm just I'm going to carry this back. I'm going to carry this back for you because there's nothing that infuriates me more than people who get all excited about this Inflation Reduction Act and it's going to trigger inflation. I'm like, I'm sorry, who are they sending money to in, in cash? Because mm-hmm. that's what ignites inflation. Pork belly spending, it's wasteful. It doesn't ignite inflation because it doesn't go into anything but, but, but pockets to your point. So so one that yacht, was, basically. One that was the difference between, if, if you look at the difference between what happened with the stimulus spending, and that's directly depositing money into checking accounts of people who are going to spend every last penny. And they're like, I don't know where the inflation came from. And I'm like, let me, let me draw you a map. <laughs> but if you look at that and you compare that to pork belly spending for infrastructure over the long term, and only if you buy American and that's going to work out well, I'm not saying it's not great to buy American. I've got four kids, one graduated from military academy, three in it right now in high school. I'm all about buying American, but but not if you're going to spend five times what you would spend otherwise and, and, and use the taxpayer's money as inefficiently as you could possibly conceive. So I'm all over spending money efficiently, but I don't want to have somebody tell me that just because the government spends money, it's going to create inflation because that didn't work for a really long time while we were running up the debt. Give money directly to the people. Yes, there's going to be line outside Gucci in the mall down the street. Well, now they just steal it, so they don't have to buy it anymore. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, you want to wrap? Certain, certain, you know, certain standard of living you got 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 accustomed to. You're going to get it one way or the other. <laughs> I didn't say uh, that. Well, it, this has been <laughs> we a, don't edit, so yes, you did. <laughs> we edit. If you ever say that you wanted something edited, we will. No, 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 no. We no. let it fly. Yeah, this doesn't right, seem like the time. <laughs> No, and this is again, we, the bullshit, we've been in, um, you know, financial media for 20 years, Bobby and I. And one of the reasons I left and got pushed out is because there are people who just won't tell the truth and say what's on their mind because other pressures. And that's a bullshit system. This is a better system. You get what people really think. I don't even have that problem when I go on TV. So go figure. Good for you. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. You know, it, was, it was so much fun. Uh, I'm sorry I missed you in New Orleans. We just passed each other. It was fun last year. We went up to there. That was awesome. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I'll catch you next time. That's always a fun conference. Please do. All right. I'm going to go. I got to run home and uh, check out of my restaurant, I think. So I will see you guys. Thank you, Danielle. Ciao. Thank you.